True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The wind whips through the large boulders of the quarry. Heat rises up from the baked ground, and as the man passes by, a flash of red material catches his eye. The woman's body is not moving. She's twisted into an unnatural position, and as the smell mixes with the breeze and rises up into his nose, he instantly recognizes that he's stumbled upon a scene of horror. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 69, The Serial Crimes of Richard Nyauza. This episode is sponsored by CBS Justice, the home of true crime in South Africa. After listening to this week's podcast, I think you'll agree that the man we're discussing today is certainly one of the country's worst serial killers. So when you're finished listening, why not watch The World's Most Evil Killers? Tonight at 9.50pm on DSTV Channel 170 for even more insights into the chilling mind of a serial killer. Tonight's episode delves into the mind of Peter Moore, a murderer who admitted to attacking 50 men over a 20-year period. A huge thank you goes out to CBS Justice for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Laura Kennard, Bronwyn, Zahir Baylor, Janet DeKornung, and Lynn for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. There are now additional ways that you can support the show, with two online businesses providing 10% discounts when you use the code TCSA10 at checkout. You can get your health and beauty needs at King Online, and you can get all your printing requirements designed, printed, and delivered by PrintCrowd. You can also help to support me as an individual creator by checking out the companion podcast I created with Showmax for the Devil's Dorp documentary, or by purchasing the Krugersdorp Cult Killings audiobook on Audible, Google Play Books, or Apple Books. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keep the show growing and improving. You can also leave a review on the podcast app you use to listen. If your podcast platform does not have that option, a Google or Facebook review is equally helpful. Today's case is one of a serial murderer. I selected this specific case because I think it presents a few really interesting themes that are important not just for victim advocacy, but also for those who consume true crime across different countries, as many of TCSA's listeners do. My main source for today's case is the book Profiler's Diary by Dr. Gerard Labaskachny. I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Labaskachny last year when he released the book, and I really enjoyed picking his brain on all things criminal and serially so. Although I would often either have a good amount of information about the perpetrator's background or the victim's background, in today's case I have very little of either. Information about a serial murderer's background is often gleaned when mitigation in sentence is led, or if they're interviewed at length after their crimes. Due to the nature of this case's investigation and trial, neither of those would be forthcoming. And in a way, that's perhaps for the best. Because thanks to this perpetrator, we also have almost no information about any of his victims. In many cases, not even their names. So I guess it makes it a little more fair that we know nothing about him either. Instead, 
In today's episode, I'll be focusing on aspects of the investigation, forensic work and profiling elements that made this case one that Dr. Labaskakni would go on to use as a teaching example throughout his career. So let's get into episode 69, The Serial Crimes of Richard Nyauza. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. In 2002, several serial murderers were active in South Africa. In his book, Profiler Diaries, Gerard Labaskachny recounts how he'd been in the latter stages of a specific serial investigation at this time. The perpetrator of one such series, dubbed the Highwayman Murders, would be arrested that year. Elias Shoke had murdered women in areas in and around Pretoria and its surrounding highways. When Shoke was arrested in November of that year, Gerard and the team he headed the investigative psychology section, later converted to a unit, believed that Shoke had been responsible for all of the victims they'd found in the area from January to his arrest in November. After the man's arrest, though, it was revealed that Shoke had been in prison from January to September of 2002, and he therefore could not have been responsible for five of the victims who'd been murdered during that time. As a side note, it's pretty impressive that in the Shoke series, he was arrested just six weeks after the series had been identified. This is actually not uncommon for serial murder investigations in South Africa. On average, we're able to arrest a serial murderer within six to eight weeks of a series being identified, and that average was perfectly adhered to in Shoke's case. Lapiskakni explains that in most serial cases, it is standard practice to include cases if they match in most aspects until they can be conclusively excluded. With Shawcare behind bars, the IPU started to reinvestigate the five cases between January and September 2002. If Shawcare had not been responsible for these murders, that means that two serial murderers had been overlapping during that period of time in the same location and in very similar modus operandi, and one of them was still out there. The first victim, discovered in 2002, was found on the 13th of January. The woman was severely decomposed. She was lying on her back, completely naked. As a result of the severe decomposition, the woman's cause of death could not be determined, and she would never be identified. On the 22nd of April, the second victim was found. This woman was even more decomposed than the first had been, but when the skull bone was viewed on its own, it became clear that the victim had sustained blunt force trauma, and this was likely the cause of her death. The third victim was found on the 13th of June. She was floating face down in a small river, that ran nearby to the quarry area the other victims had been in. The woman was naked from the waist down, and her jersey was pulled up over her breasts. This victim had also died due to blunt force trauma. Her hair was neatly braided, and she had pink nail polish on her finger and toenails. It is small details like this that really strike me about the information that Gerard Labaskachny presents in his book. He is a pretty tough person, and like so many others in his field, comes across as hardened, likely through necessity. But he notices and relays these small descriptions that really represent the humanity of these victims. In these points, you can start to picture this young woman waking up on the morning that would be her last, neatly braiding her hair. Perhaps the day before, she'd carefully selected the perfect shade of pink and then sat and painstakingly painted her toenails and then her fingernails to match. 
and many days or even weeks later, when her body was found and photographed by police, it would be these details that would catch the eye of a highly trained police psychologist, perhaps because they spoke to the woman she had been before her life was stolen. The fourth victim of the January to September period in 2002 was found just days after the third, on the 21st of June. This woman was in the same small river, just further down than the previous victim. The woman was wearing black pants, which were unbuttoned and the zip was pulled down. She wore two green wool jerseys. Toxicology tests would later identify that the victim had levels of the antidepressant mirtazapine in her blood which exceeded therapeutic levels. In addition to this, lidocaine was also found, which is a topical local anaesthetic. It's most commonly used in a gel form to numb a specific area, but it is absorbed into the bloodstream in small amounts, so it makes sense that it would have been found in a toxicology test. It is not believed that these medications had anything to do with the victim's murder, but they may be important in identifying her if her family were to hear this information and put two and two together. This victim had no injuries to her skull, but she did have significant blunt force damage to her liver. The fifth body in this period was found on the 3rd of September 2002. The woman was again further along the same river and closest to the road. In fact, she could be easily seen by passers-by. When Gerard Labaskakny attended this scene, he immediately noticed that despite the woman being in a much shallower part of the river to the others, she was weighed down by a large rock. The rock had not been used to strike the woman. It was clear that it had been placed on top of her after she was dead to keep her in place. The victim was wearing bright red pants, a colourful vest and black underwear, and her fingernails were painted in red. She was barefoot, but her socks lay 30 metres away. Her bright clothing, combined with the rock that kept her in place, meant that she would be easier to spot. Perhaps, Labaskakny thought, the killer had wanted her to be found. The cause of death of this victim could not be determined, and there did not appear to be any damage to her genital area, which would be indicative of rape. This, though, is not necessarily a sign in adults that rape has definitively not occurred, and it is still important in cases where sexual assault is possible for a vaginal swab to be taken in case the DNA from an offender is present. Unfortunately, according to Labaskakny, this does not always happen unless an investigating officer attends the autopsy, an occurrence which in itself is rare. The victim in the red pants had been menstruating at the time of her murder, so pathologists had not thought it likely that any DNA would have remained behind. But Labaskakny and the investigating officer Neville Hale requested that it be done anyway. This would be a vitally important decision. Sadly, not one of these victims was ever identified. The investigating team used many different methods in an attempt to discover their identity. Missing persons reports are, of course, always a first stop. When that fails, fingerprints are another option. In Profiler Diaries, Gerard Labaskakny explains a technique that is used to identify severely decomposed victims. When the human body begins to decompose, the skin begins to change in its consistency. A phenomenon called skin slippage occurs, where the junction between the dermis and the epidermis begins to break down, and skin can pull away when a body is touched or moved. When this breakdown in skin has already started, it can be very difficult to get clear fingerprints from a body. When this happens, Labaskakny explains the pathologist will carefully remove the skin from the fingers, including the lines and walls which make up our unique fingerprints. 
They will then roll the skin onto their own gloved hands, essentially reforming the deceased's prints on their own fingers. This technique was used with many of the five victims that were found in 2002. The prints were sent to Home Affairs, but no identification was returned from this process. Another technique which would be used is facial reconstruction. Severe decomposition changes the shape of the face as well as its features, and it is of course not possible to take a photograph of a severely decomposed person and publish their picture in a newspaper in the hopes that someone may recognise them. The face can be reconstructed though by an expert in facial anatomy. The skull will often be stripped completely of any flesh, and then clay, plastic or wax may be applied directly to the skull to reconstruct what the victim's face would likely have looked like in life. As technology has advanced, it is now also possible to do this digitally. Images of the reconstructed faces of these women were posted in townships and suburbs close to where they were found, but sadly, no identifications were forthcoming from these efforts either. Identification of a victim is vital to an investigation. This will become clear later on in this episode when we see some victims being identified and how important the information about their lives and their movements before their death become. With all leads run down in these five murders and the murderer seemingly having stopped or moved on somewhere else, there was little for Gerard and the individual investigators to do but wait. Four years later, in 2006, Detective Warrant Officer Buti Baloy from Vieta Bridge SAPS in Centurion approached the IPU. The detective had two murders he was investigating, and he was sharp enough to realise that the circumstances around the murders pointed to a possible serial murderer. The victims had been found near an open pit quarry along the R55 between Santon and Pretoria West. Labaskachny told Beloy about the five cases from 2002 which had remained unsolved, and it seemed likely that the killer had returned from a hiatus. The first case Beloy presented to the IPU was a woman found on the 2nd of January 2006. She was completely naked and floating in the very same river that the 2002 victims were found in. The victim's cause of death was a combination of strangulation and blunt force trauma to her chest. Although she was never identified, they managed to obtain a sample of male DNA from her body. The second case Beloy had arrived with was a body found just six days later. This woman was also completely naked and found in a field near the river. She was unfortunately severely decomposed and no forensic evidence could be found in or on her body. She would also never be identified. Gerard Labaskachny recognised that a task force was required to properly investigate this series. A task force is a small group of SAPS members with various specialisations who were given permission by the higher-ups to work solely on a single major case or series for a specified period of time. The task force setup is vital to many serial murder cases, as if one is not formed, then detectives are required to continue working on all the other cases in their possession while also trying to catch a serial murderer, which, with the caseload most detectives have, is extremely difficult, if not impossible. It is the approval for these task forces that Labaskachny explains is a serious obstacle, at least in 2006. Labaskachny puts in a formal request for a task force in January when Beloy approaches him about his two cases. It would eventually take five months for the task force to be approved. During this time, Labaskachny was working on nine other active serial cases in various provinces and also testifying in cases he'd helped to wrap before that. 
Poloi would have been forced to continue working all of his other cases while having no other choice but to wait for the next body to be found. This happened on the 27th of February 2006. Beloy called Gerard Labaskachny to the scene. The woman was in the same river as the others. She was wearing a blouse and a skirt, but her underwear had been removed. An autopsy would indicate that she'd been strangled, but had perhaps been left unconscious in the water, and her eventual cause of death was drowning. This victim was never identified. On the 21st of April 2006, the fourth victim in this part of the series and the ninth victim overall was discovered. The woman was wearing only a skirt which was pulled up to her waist. Her body was severely decomposed and entomological evidence from the insects on and around her indicates that she'd been deceased for at least two weeks. Her cause of death was undetermined and she was not identified. The fifth victim of the 2006 series was found on the same day as the fourth. The victim was even more decomposed than the other, with parts of her body already mummified. She was clothed in tracksuit pants and underwear which were pulled down to her ankles. She had a white cloth wrapped around her neck and two metal basins lay beside her body. Due to the extent of the decomposition, A cause of death could not be determined for sure, but it was very likely that she was strangled to death with the ligature. This victim would be the first to be identified. After going through missing person reports, the clothing she was wearing, as well as the basins near her body, would initially identify her as Evelyn Dube. Evelyn was 33 years old and a Zimbabwean citizen. On the 19th of March 2006, she'd left her home to travel to Elevenhoetsbosch Township to sell metal basins. She never returned home. Entomological evidence put Evelyn's death at approximately 30 days before she was found, which matched almost exactly with the last time she was seen. Her identity was confirmed through a DNA match to her parents. The sixth victim at this time was found on the 30th of April. Stainless steel cooking pots lay near her body. She was dressed in a white vest which was pulled up over her breasts. This victim was frozen in time in an upside-down seated position. Labaskachny describes it as though she'd been sitting on a chair. Someone had tipped that chair forward and she'd remained in that position. There was a clear ligature mark around this victim's neck and vaginal swabs produced a DNA profile of an unknown male. Thankfully, this victim too was identified. Molina Gunduza was just 25 years old when she left her home to sell stainless steel cooking pots in the Olivenhoetsbosch township. She had last been seen at 8am that morning and her body was discovered the same day at 4pm. With six victims in 2006 and a total of 11 thus far overall, the team was still pushing for a task force to be formed so that they could focus solely on the series and get it solved. Five months after their initial application, in May 2006, the request was finally approved and the Quarry Murder Task Force was officially formed. The task force was led by Gerard Labaskachny and consisted of several members of the IPU as well as Detective Buti Baloy and a student constable. The ops room for the task force was set up at the IPU headquarters in Pretoria. This was done predominantly to ensure the security of the information they would discuss. An ops room at a police station would be easy pickings for someone wanting to leak information to the press. Within hours of receiving the call to confirm the formation of a task force, a vehicle was secured for the investigators, which in itself was a massive undertaking, as detectives at stations share vehicles, and securing a dedicated vehicle at the time 
was almost unheard of. To start, the task force decided to start visiting the crime scenes. They arrived at the entrance to the quarry, and as they started to drive through the gate, a security guard ran up to their vehicle. The man told the team that he was impressed at how quickly they had arrived. The team was understandably confused at this comment, but the security guard then motioned to two men standing near the gate and said that these men would show them where the body was. It emerged that the team had arrived, quite coincidentally, just minutes after two men walking in the area had discovered the seventh victim for 2006. The security guard had called the police to attend the scene and thought the task team were responding to that call. One of the men said he needed to move on and the team let him go, as the other man said he'd take them to where the body had been found. The man got into the vehicle with Detective Baloy and the convoy slowly made their way through the quarry. A few hundred metres down the gravel road, the man in Beloy's vehicle suddenly opened the door and ran away. Beloy said one minute he was talking and the next minute he was running. I will admit that at this point in my research, I thought that this guy could be the perpetrator. It's not uncommon for perpetrators to insert themselves into investigations, and even to find the bodies of their victims when they feel police are taking too long to do so. For some, this is a psychological kick and a bit of extra power play, and for others, it's a way to gain information about the investigation and understand police procedure as they watch them approach the crime scene. It would turn out, though, that for this man, neither applied, and he was not the suspect there was a very good possibility that he was guilty of something else and perhaps suddenly felt very vulnerable being with police, or maybe he just didn't want to see the body again. Either way, the task team was now in the middle of the quarry with no idea where to go, so they decided to drive back and find the other man. They found him walking on the side of the road just outside the quarry, explained that his friend had run away and asked if he could please show them where the body was. The man agreed and walked the team to the spot. In amongst some of the largest boulders in the quarry, the seventh victim of the quarry murder series lay dressed in a pink skirt and matching top. Her dress was pulled up to her waist. The woman's body was severely decomposed, and she could not be identified. The team would analyse 146 dockets during this period, looking for additional cases that could be linked to the series, and also in an attempt to identify their victims. On the 31st of May, a massive search was undertaken in the quarry. Scent dogs were used to clear that area. Although no more bodies were found, this helped the task team to fix a date on which they knew without a doubt that the quarry was clear. Any victims found after this date would have had to have been left there after the 31st of May. As part of the investigation, the team sent all of the GPS coordinates for the body recovery sites to Professor David Cantor at the University of Liverpool. Cantor and Canadian academic Kim Rosmo developed the concept of geographic profiling, which is based on the theory that serial offenders have comfort zones in which they operate. These comfort zones are generally centred around their homes, places of work, or other areas they're familiar with. Rosmo and Cantor developed software which plots the coordinates of body recovery sites, and then using estimated distances, which are mo most common in these cases, identifies areas of dwelling or industry in which the offender may live or work. When they received the profile back from Cantor, the task team laid it over a satellite image of their area. The profile identified a cluster of buildings near the site, and on the 4th of July 2006 at 10pm, the task team and additional units descended on the buildings in a targeted search. The idea was to link any cell phone belonging to the occupants in the buildings to the two victims they'd managed to identify. 
This highlights once again the importance of victim identification in murder cases. By identifying two of their victims, police were able to keep an eye on activity on their cell phones, which would end up being of vital assistance. The search, unfortunately, did not turn up any leads, but if they hadn't tried, they would never have known, and often in investigations, excluding areas, people and leads is just as important as including them. On the 31st of July 2006, the eighth victim for that year was found. She was in the rockier area of the quarry and was wearing only a black bra, which had been pushed up over her breasts. The victim was decomposed, but penetrating wounds to her chest were found, which was slightly different to the injuries on the other victims. The wounds were described as pin-like, round and about 2 to 3 millimetres in diameter. The team's work in having regularly gone through the missing person reports paid off when this victim was found, and after reconstructing her face, they were able to identify her as Selina Matlangu. 30-year-old Selina had gone missing around the 29th of May when she'd received a telephone call about a job offer. She and her boyfriend had arrived in the Elevenhoetz-Bosch area shortly afterwards. Her boyfriend had accompanied her as a safety precaution, but when they'd arrived at the meeting place, her boyfriend said she'd gone back inside, met with the man she called Jabu, she came back out and told her boyfriend everything was fine and he'd left her there. He had never seen her again. Selina's cell phone would remain active for quite some time after her murder, and the police used this as an investigation tool as well. While at Selina's scene, the task force had called out the dog unit to search the area, and another body was discovered just 20 metres from Selina's. This victim, the ninth for this portion of the series, and the 14th overall, was wearing a white bra, which had been pulled down, as well as brown boots and socks. She had the same pin-like wounds to her neck, chest and abdomen that they'd seen on Selina. On seeing these wounds, Labaskakni believed that they had been caused by a thin screwdriver. Unfortunately, this victim was not identified. On the 18th of August, a mass funeral was held for five of the unidentified victims. Press attention around this case was increasing significantly, and over 300 people attended the service. The task team would later discover that their killer had been among the attendees. The day after the funeral, Saturday the 19th of August, the task team decided to observe the quarry area for the day. They'd noticed that most of the identified victims had disappeared on a Sunday, so they wanted to see how much foot traffic the area got over the weekend in order to understand just how much risk-taking behaviour was involved in the perpetrator's crimes. They noticed that Sundays in particular were extremely busy, with bike riders, quad bikers and general passing foot traffic. If the killer was choosing to commit his crimes in the busiest time of the week, this was undoubtedly part of the thrill for him. The following Sunday, the team donned camo gear and took up hidden spots around the quarry where they'd spend hours lying in the heat, dead still, hoping to spot someone of interest to the investigation. The task team became aware that Selina McClangu's boyfriend had disappeared after he'd reported her as missing. Although she was still believed to be part of the series, this was extremely suspicious, and they had to look into the possibility that he may have been involved in her murder. After searching for him, they managed to arrest the man at a local shopping centre. After running his DNA, though, they acknowledged that he was not their offender and released him. On the 1st of September, another body was found. This victim was found much sooner after her murder than the others, and as a result, held the most hope for forensic evidence. The victim was found lying face down and wearing a pink bra and peach-coloured top. She was found at 9am in the morning and was identified as Elizabeth Mabasa.
She had last been seen on Wednesday, the 30th of August, when she'd left her place of employment in Moiklu of Pretoria. Her pants, underwear and cell phone were all missing. In his book, Gerard Labaskakni notes that it's quite rare for pathologists to be called out to murder scenes, and this is often a disservice to justice, as they will gain information and gather evidence from the scene that may otherwise be missed and may be very helpful in an autopsy. On this occasion, a pathologist was called out, and a dried white substance, which was believed to be semen, was swabbed from the victim's body. The victim's hands were also bagged on the scene, which was helpful to collecting evidence that may have been transferred in a struggle. If a victim's hands are not bagged at the scene, DNA found under their fingernails cannot be used, as it may have been contaminated. Elizabeth's cause of death was determined to be a combination of ligature strangulation and blunt force trauma. She'd incurred a ruptured liver, injuries to her heart from external trauma and acute blood loss. She had been 12 weeks pregnant at the time of her murder. Elizabeth's cell phone data would again be useful in the investigation. Four days after Elizabeth Mabasa's body was found, the task team received a phone call from the forensic laboratory. They had a match to their unknown male DNA sample. The match, in fact, had first been made four years before. In 2002, a man had been arrested for the attempted rape of his girlfriend's nine-year-old daughter. His DNA had been taken at that time and entered into the system. This in itself had been a stroke of luck, because at that time in South Africa, a suspect in an attempted rape would not have had his DNA taken, because DNA was solely used for specific case investigation, and no DNA was present on the victim. A short while later, though, the DNA swab from the last murder victim in the 2002 series, the woman with the bright red pants, had also been entered into the system, and a match had been made. Legislation at this time in South Africa did not mandate that anyone monitor these matches, nor that they be followed up on. Had someone picked up that match in 2002, they would have found that the owner of this DNA, Richard Jabulani Nyauza, was at that time incarcerated while awaiting trial on his attempted rape charge. At minimum, he may have been found guilty of the murder of the victim in the red pants, and he may have been sentenced to a long prison sentence, essentially saving the lives of at least another 11 women. The frustration at this knowledge is immense. But our legislation and systems were simply not set up at the time for this type of linkage. Thankfully, today we do use DNA samples to match other crimes. If you want to learn more about how our DNA legislation and systems have changed over the years, you can listen to my interview with Vanessa Lynch of DNA for Africa. The task force now had a suspect's name, and having learned that this man had a history, they wanted to understand who they were dealing with. Richard Nyauza's record would show that he'd been awaiting trial for the attempted rape charge from 2002 to 2005. He was found guilty of this charge at trial, but unfortunately the trial took place at a magistrate's court, and because the court was not mandated to be able to issue a sentence of the kind his crime called for, they referred sentencing to the High Court. When the case came up for sentencing, something rather unexpected happened. The High Court overturned the magistrate court's verdict, and Yauza was found not guilty of the attempted rape. He was set free in November 2005. Less than six weeks later, he'd gone back to killing women in the quarry. We know that serial murderers generally do not stop killing, so when bodies stop being found, we can safely assume that the perpetrator has either died, been hospitalised, imprisoned or moved areas. The task team had considered that their killer may have been in prison during this time, and they had looked at parole records 
and followed up on several released sex offenders during their investigation. But of course, none of these had panned out because Richard Nyauza had not been on parole. His conviction had been entirely overturned. The task team located Nyauza's ex-girlfriend from 2002 and she acknowledged that she was aware the man was out of prison and she'd seen him around the area. She'd even made it her business to know where he lived to ensure the safety of her daughter. While Richard Nyauza had been in prison, an application he'd made for RDP housing had come through. His brother had moved into the house until Nyauza was released, and then he'd taken occupation of it in late 2005. The woman was able to point out the exact house to police. The house was just one kilometre from where the 2006 victims had been found. The task team had kept tabs on the cell phones of the identified victims, and the one cell phone that was still moving around and pinging off various towers was that of Selina Mahlangu. Selina's boyfriend had told police that she'd been in contact with a man who called himself Jabu when she disappeared, and this fit as well because Richard Nyawuza's middle name was Jabulani. When police approached Nyawuza's house, he was not home, so they backed off and placed an undercover policeman at a nearby Shabin. Officer Mukwena had a full view of Nyawuza's house and sat watching while the rest of the team gathered at a garage nearby waiting for his call. In addition to this, they activated Mukwena's cell phone on the tracking system so that they could watch as Selina's phone, which they believed to be in the possession of Nyawuza, and Mukwena's phone came closer together, indicating that he was on his way home. Sure enough, as the two dots on the screen moved closer and closer together, Officer Mukwena alerted the team to the arrival of two men at the home of Richard Nyawuza. Within minutes, the men were surrounded by police cars and both were arrested. The men were identified as Richard Nyawuza and his brother. The brothers were separated and Richard was placed in a police car with the policeman Detective Inspector Monet de Toy. This was definitely a strategic move, as de Toy worked predominantly undercover and was known for his excellent people skills. He had a talent for getting under the skin of those he was around. While de Toy and Nyawuza sat smoking cigarettes in the police car, forensic teams descended on the man's home. When he was arrested, the cell phone he was carrying contained Selina Mahlangu's SIM card. Inside the house, police found Elizabeth Mabasa's handbag and cell phone. A while after the arrest, Detoy approached the task team and told them that Richard Nyauza was talking. He would go on to provide a full confession and pointed out several of the crime scenes. The pointing out of crime scenes by murderers needs to be conducted in a very specific way. As you may have noticed in many of the serial murder cases I discuss, although the suspect confesses and points out scenes, they often retract these confessions when it comes to trial, and when this happens, it's vital for the state to be able to show that the locations of the scenes could not in any way have been known by the suspect if he or she had not actually committed the crimes. One way of doing this is by ensuring that pointing outs are conducted by police officers that have no affiliation or prior knowledge of the case. This way, the suspect can't claim that he was shown where the scenes were. When the Nyauza pointing outs were going to happen, this information was somehow leaked to the press. Gerard Labaskakni received a call from a journalist saying that they were going to be attending the pointing out with a camera crew. Now, clearly, this would be a serious issue if Nyauza decided to make an about turn. As Labaskakni says in his book, all he would need to do is say, well, I just pointed to where the camera crew was standing. Although he explained this to the journalist, it would take an additional threat of arrest if they came anywhere near the scenes for them to back off and decide it wasn't a good idea. Nyauza admitted that he'd used various methods of killing during his crimes, 
including manual and ligature strangulation, beating with the stone and plank, stabbing with the screwdriver and kicking his victims. These admissions would correlate with the injuries that were found on the victims, including the internal injuries to two of the victims' livers, which were presumably caused by Nyauza kicking them repeatedly. Nyauza alleged that he'd killed women as an act of revenge because a woman had given him HIV. As far as the identity of his victims were concerned, the man was of little help. He mentioned several different first names, but none of these led to the identification of any of his victims. During his confessions, he claimed that he'd murdered a man in an arranged hit years before, and also that he'd participated in two cash-in-transit robberies. No proof could be found of either of these claims, and he would never be charged with these crimes. On the 14th of September, Richard Nyauza was charged and did not request to apply for bail. His brother had in the interim been cleared of any involvement, and he was released. Then, three days later, another body was found. The victim was wearing blue tracksuit pants, a white vest and socks. She was identified as Kuna Rosina Mosvana. She too had been lured by the offer of a job. The task team was concerned. DNA told them that they definitely had the right man in custody for the crimes thus far. But who then had killed Kuna Mosvana? Labaskakni says that in his entire career working with serial crimes, they've never had a copycat. A copycat, of course, is a killer that replicates the modus operandi and victim selection of another serial murderer. There had been several occasions where particularly men who killed their wives or girlfriends had used a known serial killer hunting ground to dispose of the body, hoping the murder would be written off as part of the series. But Kuna's murder did not seem to be one of those either. Kuna had been reported missing on the 3rd of May 2006, and the autopsy would eventually reveal that she had in fact been killed around that time, and the cold of winter had slowed her decomposition so significantly that she'd appeared to have died much closer to September when she was found. She was definitely one of Richard Nyauza's victims. This brought the victim count to 16. The prosecutor in this case initially only wanted to prosecute for the cases in which there was physical evidence, which meant that only eight of the 16 victims would get true justice. Certainly, this was a wise move from a tactical perspective, but the IPU had two reasons why they didn't want this to happen. Firstly, they felt strongly that all of the victims deserved to have their cases heard. It was bad enough that most of them would never have their names returned to them and would never be buried by their families, but they did, at the very least, deserve to have a life sentence attributed to their murder. The second reason was that in 2006, serial offender cases still had very little case law to fall back on. The work that the IPU had done in linkage analyses proved that it was possible to link cases to the same offender without physical evidence, and they wanted to use Richard Nyauza as an example of how this could be done. If this could be achieved, it would mean that prosecutors and judges in future serial cases could trust linkage analysis evidence to rely on for convictions, and they could reference the Nyauza case as a precedent. The prosecutor eventually relented and agreed to prosecute Nyauza for all 16 murders. In the run-up to Nyauza's trial, Gerard Labaskakni received a surprising phone call. A detective from the northwest called to say he was on his way to collect Richard Nyauza as he was a suspect in an attempted murder in his jurisdiction. Labaskakni explained to the detective that there was no way he was releasing a serial murder suspect into his custody to answer for a single attempted murder. But the details of this case would help to strengthen their own case. It would emerge that a few months before his arrest, 
Richard Nyawuza had been making a delivery of ostrich feed for his employer in the northwest province when he picked up Jane Seramani on the side of the road and offered her a lift. The woman would later report that Nyawuza had attacked her, stabbing her with a screwdriver, beating her and then dumping her on the side of the road, presumably believing she was dead. Jane had survived, but she had lost the baby she'd been carrying. The Northwest West would eventually be included in the Pretoria series prosecution after special permission was granted to include a case outside of the jurisdiction. Jane Ceremani and a farm labourer who'd witnessed Jane getting into the vehicle Nyauza was driving would take 10 and 5 seconds respectively to point him out in an identity parade. Nyauza's trial started on the 23rd of October 2007 under Judge John Murphy. Nyauza was represented by a seasoned legal aid defence lawyer, Advocate Lawrence Shabalala. Despite having confessed and pointed out scenes, Nyauza pleaded not guilty to all charges against him. He also chose not to present any evidence of his innocence. Essentially, his defence was, I didn't do it, prove that I did. Nyauza was facing 24 charges in total, 16 of murder, 1 of attempted murder, 4 counts of rape, and three counts of robbery for the cell phones and handbags that were found in his house. The state's evidence was presented rather quickly, as much of it was undisputed by the defence. In all, 18 witnesses testified in the trial. Jane Seramani, the attempted murder victim, testified as to how her life had been changed by the attack. She had lost partial sight because Nyauza had stabbed her in the forehead. She'd miscarried her baby, and she found it impossible to trust anyone anymore. While she gave her testimony, Judge John Murphy asked defence counsel to control his client. Nyauza was laughing at Jane as she spoke and cried. A trial within a trial would be held when, as expected, Nyauza had attempted to have his confession and pointing out dismissed from evidence. He claimed that he was intimidated into the confession and coached to point out the scenes. He also claimed that he was given pills to take, which made him drowsy, so he didn't know what he was doing at the time. The pointing outs were recorded by police, and the judge was able to see Nyauza's conduct firsthand. The man appeared completely normal, didn't stumble or slur, and did not visibly show any signs of being under the influence of anything. In fact, police had given Nyauza access to medication during that time, but it was by his own request and the advice of a doctor, and the pills were antiretrovirals to help his body fight the HIV virus. Ultimately, the defence's request for the evidence to be deemed inadmissible was turned down. The final witness to testify was an expert witness, Dr. Gerard Labaskakni. Labaskakni testified to the linkage analysis that had been conducted on the series of murders. Rather importantly, his testimony was not in any way led to point to any specific suspect, including Richard Nyauza. Rather, the linkage evidence was provided to aid the court in understanding why all 16 cases must have been committed by the same offender, regardless of who that offender was. Included in the linkage analysis were aspects of geographic profiling, cause of death, the method of luring the victims, the fact that in 14 of the 16 cases there was a sexual element involved and that the victimology was all the same. This was the moment that the IPU had been working toward, as if this evidence was accepted by the judge, it could be used as case law in future. Labaskakni was surprised to find that the defence did not wish to cross-examine him. He says in his book he would have actually preferred being cross-examined because it would have made the evidence and eventual case law more robust but advocate Shabalala could only do what his clients had instructed him to, and it seemed 
Richard Nyauza did not wish to counter any of what Labaskakni was saying. In fact, as Labaskakni left the stand, Richard Nyauza thanked him for his testimony. The two men had had a few interesting interactions after Nyauza's arrest, and the man would end up wearing some of Labaskakni's old clothes to court. He would occasionally buy him lunch with his advocate's permission, and also brought Nyauza newspapers when his case was discussed in the press. As the trial wrapped up, it's alleged that Nyauza asked Labaskakni if he would help him write a book about his life, an offer which, I'm assuming, the doctor declined. On the 5th of November 2007, Richard Nyauza was found guilty of all the charges against him. The judge went into sentencing immediately, as with the severity of the charges, there was little mitigating evidence that could be led, and aggravating evidence was pointless, because the crimes already qualified for life sentences. Nyauza was given a life sentence for each murder, so 16 in total. For the rapes, he was given 80 years, and 45 years for the robberies. The judge also said that Nyauza should remain in custody for the rest of his natural life. Richard Nyauza smiled as the judge passed down his sentence. When asked by a journalist how he felt, he quite honestly said he didn't actually feel anything, and that as far as he was concerned, nothing had changed. In many of the serial murder cases I've covered, I've made the comments that the killer's actions don't fit with what we expect from serial murderers. And after doing research for this case, I'm not going to be saying that anymore. Because I've come to the realisation that South African serial killers are actually behaving exactly the way South African serial killers behave. It's our expectations that are different. And serial killers in Peru behave exactly the way Peruvian serial killers behave. And so do Chinese serial killers. And so on and so forth. As consumers of true crime content, we've come to expect all serial offenders to behave the way we've seen on television and listened to in other podcasts or read about in books. But that content is based predominantly on American serial killers. Does the country you're in really have such a big influence on the way crimes are committed? The answer is a resounding yes. In researching this case, I came across a research paper written by Gerard Labaskakni called An Examination of Serial Homicide in South Africa. And the paper details all the ways in which South African serial offenders are unique, or at least the pattern of behaviour that is considered normal, as far as this abnormal behaviour is concerned, for serials in our country. You may have noticed that a lot of serial killers in South Africa use con stories to lure their victims. Very often, these con stories surround jobs. Labaskakni says that this is something his colleagues in Europe, for example, find very difficult to understand. And it's simply because our economic situation and high levels of unemployment support this behaviour. A South African serial killer attempting to use this MO in America or the UK would be highly unsuccessful, because the level of desperation doesn't exist in as large a portion of their population as it does in ours. A quote that supports this directly from the aforementioned paper is as follows, quote, In a study following up on the issues relating to the consistency of victim type showed that the offender, using a con story to lure his victims, occurred in 47% of incidents in South Africa, end quote. You may have also noticed that South African serial killers tend to use many different methods of killing, so much so that it's actually become the norm for us. When we hear this, we believe it's abnormal behaviour, because the media has taught us that serial killers use the same method of killing every time. Well, maybe American serial killers do, but South African serial killers don't. This comes down to opportunity. 
Guns are almost never used in serial homicides in South Africa, whereas in America they are regularly used. And ballistics even form part of U.S. linkage analyses, whereas they don't in South Africa. South African serial killers use what is at hand, and very often that's different for each murder. Another point that's important in local serials is that almost 20% of our serial victims are never identified. We saw this in stark reality in this case, with the vast majority of the 16 victims never being named. The reasons behind this could be multiple. Perhaps missing person reports are not being effectively managed. Perhaps too many serial homicides don't get the resources like a task team that they require. Perhaps because so many of our people travel such great distances for work, they're not being reported missing. Another interesting fact about SA serials is that in 78% of serial murders in South Africa, the victim is found in the same place that they were killed. This undoubtedly is because the large majority of people in South Africa rely on public transport, and no one is going to transport a body by a taxi or bus. So they lure their victims with the promise of a job. Take them to a relatively isolated spot, kill them, and leave them where they've killed them. In America, for instance, we often see their serial killers transporting victims over state lines in an effort to avoid detection. You don't see that in South Africa. So really, it is so vital for us as a true crime-consuming public to understand how these intricacies play out. And it is vital for an investigator or profiler to understand how the country, or even sometimes the province in which the crime is committed, impacts the facts of the case. Of course, there are certain aspects of serial investigation that are relevant no matter where in the world you find yourself, but there are also very important differences that must be taken into account. I was watching a talk that Gerard Labaskakni gave on the impact of DNA on serial investigations, and he said something which I found quite profound. I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially it was that even with all our knowledge and research, we don't know what causes someone to become a serial offender, but we do know what allows them to become one, and that is ineffective policing methods. If every rapist or murderer was caught after their first crime, there would be no serial offenders. And of course, this is not an indictment of South African policing in my view. It's an encouragement to every police force in the world to learn from their mistakes and put systems in place to make solving cases easier and faster. I think it's also an encouragement to the general public to educate ourselves and rather than being so obsessed with why these people do what they do, rather become obsessed with helping to resolve the systemic issues that allow them to do what they do. Things like helping to advocate for better missing persons reporting, better DNA legislation, and even improved social systems for children. Because although it may not seem like it on the face, that is what stops serial offenders from serially offending. Really, it's about ensuring that our investigation system evolves as we learn more about how we can do better. If there's one thing I can't wrap my head around in this case, it's that only five of Nyawuza's 16 victims were identified. This was definitely not through lack of trying by the task team, but the fact remains that the families of 11 women in South Africa or its neighbouring countries have lived for 16 to 20 years, possibly believing that their loved one chose to walk away. Parents may have died not knowing where their daughters are. Children have grown up believing they were abandoned. 11 women lay in state graves, unmarked, unnamed, and unknown. I would love to be able to end this episode with 16 names, but I only have five. Evelyn Dube, Molina Gunduza, 
Selina Machlangu, Elizabeth Mabasa, Kuna Rosina Mosvana, and the 11 other unidentified victims. Rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode 69, The Serial Crimes of Richard Nyawuza. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. I'll be back next Friday with another episode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon. <laughs>